Escape Pod, 265. November 4, 2010. We are Ted Tuscadero for President by Chris Dolan. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. Election season is over in the U.S. And I hope your candidate won because the other one was a snake or an idiot or a crook. I hope there are no recounts, and I must admit, I dream of the day that the hanging Chad is something abhorrent only to guys named Chad. Honestly, I hate election season. The more I learn about politics, the more I'm convinced we're just being fooled. Facts don't matter. Neither does history. What matters is working the crowds, half-truths, and especially vague promises that don't take into account that you will have to get scores of people with their own agendas to agree with you before you can fulfill them. You think that history would teach us a lesson, but no, we slept through history in school. Speaking of politics, this week's story is We Are Ted Tuscadero for President by Chris Dolan. He lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire with his wife and his son. Who wants to be a robot? Well, who doesn't? Mr. Dolan writes about games and music for Edge, Pitchfork, and the Onion AV Club. He's also the editorial director of Killscreen, a new print quarterly magazine about video games. We'll link to that in our show notes. The story is read for us by two-time Hugo Award-winning artist Cheyenne Wright, owner of the Buttery Man Voice. My opponent doesn't want you to vote. He doesn't even want you to read. But I know you're smarter than that. And come election day, you'll vote for story time. We are Ted Tuscadero for President by Chris Dolan. My name is Ted Tuscadero, and I want to be your president. I say that with a humble heart. I realize that even after eight stellar years in the Senate, some of you are still getting to know me. And I'll admit, I am not perfect. The other day when I told a VFW in Littleton I would blast Iran to glass, and at the same exact time I swore off the war at a town hall in Concord, my bad. Or the time that three of me showed up for the big debate in Manchester and we got in a fistfight over who was going on the air. Yeah, the chattering classes had a few laughs over that one. And that little incident before the holidays, when I crashed as lit as a Christmas tree into a pole and my car exploded, killing me instantly and taking a mailbox, a transformer, and a barn cat with me. It looked bad, I know. But that proxy was on the fritz. That's not me. That's not who I am. And the more we talk, the better you get to know me, the more you'll see what I mean. I am a lucky man. Of the hundred of me that fanned out across New Hampshire for the presidential primary campaign, I landed in Fairport, a cute spot on the coast. My ex-wife would have called it Darling. I didn't even know New Hampshire had a coast until they drove me here and Got me a room, looking over the harbor, the tugboats, the cobblestone streets. The whole place is loaded with money and photo ops. I'd like to think it's payback for a job well done. For the last six months, I've been shaking hands, holding town halls, and listening to cranky seniors and eager young back-to-the-earthers. I've eaten food on a stick that belonged in the trash. I've honed my laugh lines and sold my vision. Primaries in January. My opponent 
Billy LaMontagne, as local roots, three-time governor of the neighboring Maine, well-known and well-liked in the area. LaMontagne doesn't use proxies. He's stumbling the state all by himself. But he doesn't need proxies when everyone with four teeth or fewer knows his face and thinks they can trust it. I'm the insurgent from New Jersey with everything to prove. Here's what the focus groups say about me. City slicker. Promises anything to anyone. We'll take away our right to bear arms. That one really gets me. La Montaigne likes to wave around an assault rifle during deer season to show all the yokels he likes red meat and Milwaukee's worst as much as the rest of them. I'm fine. Next to that, I do look slick. It's called owning a comb. And a necktie. And I've been doing it since Princeton. Thanks. La Montaigne can crack the screen. I'll grant him that. When this is all over, he should really get his own line of barbecue sauce. But we're talking about a national election. The guy has a loose mouth and a small mind. If he gets the nomination, the Republicans won't even run against him. They'll just kick back and watch him destroy himself. So this race isn't just about me. It's my duty as a loyal Democrat to put this guy down. But back to me. I have two jobs here in Fairport. First and foremost, it's the usual campaign stuff. Shake a lot of hands, get a lot of money. But I also have a project. I was explaining it to an 8th grader the other day. She was doing a thing for her school paper, which has a teeny readership made up of totally non-voting audience. But hey, any press is good, and I never talk above an 8th grade level anyway. We sat in the school gym with old crumbly murals and the outlines of kids painted on the wall, all kind of round and blank. Probably just the same kid painted over and over. Above it all flew a giant American flag, and I made sure it was in the shot when she took my picture. So, um, Senator Tuscadero? Starts the kid. Call me Ted, I say, flashing my brilliant white teeth. Um, I'm not sure how to ask this, but are you the real Senator Tuscadero, or... I'm a proxy, I say, smiling again. I never let anyone feel awkward, especially about this. I'm one of the hundred proxies in New Hampshire, here for the original Ted Tuscadero, who's down in D.C., doing the work of the people. The proxies are here to give the people of New Hampshire, the first-in-the-nation primary voters who can set me up with that sweet, sweet early momentum, I'm thinking, a close look at my governing style, my experience, and my vision for a better America. So you're called a proxy. Do you ever call yourselves clones? I laugh again, gently. We could, but we prefer the term proxy. Clone tested badly. Next, we get to why I'm in Fairport, my special project, which will show the voters what a doer and a leader I am. So, Amy, I'd like to tell you what I'm here to do. You may have heard that Fairport would like to build a windmill, a state-of-the-art, clean, green energy solution that would cut your bills and make us safe from the bad guys across the sea. Amy nods her head up and down and cocks it to the side, like she'd seen somebody do on TV. Maybe Kirk. That's on Parakeet Ave, she says. Exactly. And that's the site they chose. The trouble is, someone else, a man named Jim McSmith, bought the land, and he'd like to put a different business there. A bar. That's right, a bar. Here's what the 8th grader can't put in her newspaper. The restaurant and bar would be called Body Shots. It's a biker-themed titty bar, dropped right here on the snooty seacoast. The neighbors for a mile around are batshit about this. 
about how it'll look, who it'll draw, and the growl of barely ridden Harleys in the parking lot. But the zoning doesn't prohibit it. Somebody needs to work out a deal, and that's what I'm here to do. My campaign aide, Rachel, subtly taps her watch. Time to wrap this up. I answer a couple more questions and shook my little reporter's hand. We also give her some pins and a pamphlet for her parents. Tom Tuscadero, a real leader for America. Don't forget to vote. I wink at her as they whisk me out the door. I'm here with two aides. One is my driver. After the Christmas crash, we all got drivers. And the other is Rachel, my aide. Also, my lover. And by lover, I mean yee-haw. She has a dual degree in poli-sci and psychology. Though I'll be frank, that's not the first thing I noticed when they signed her to me. A slender brunette, just out of Swarthmore. She's an idealist who still believes in the process. She loves politics. She's smitten with me, too. And she's also kind of fascinated by me. She's drawn to my meteoric career, but also to my complex personality. What have we got today, I ask? The Senior Citizen Center at 10, lunch with the Chamber of Commerce at noon, and a dialing for dollars in the afternoon. I wince. I hate dialing for dollars. I call everyone I've known for my whole life and ask them for money. It feels crass. Plus, sometimes our lists get mixed up, and I'll end up calling my third-grade English teacher, and just as I'm about to reminisce, she tells me that an Another proxy already rang her up with the saying, You walked me to the school nurse memory. It always makes me feel like a phony. But before all that, we head downtown. I swing by Main Street at least once a day, grab a latte from the locally owned cafe dead center downtown. The same apple Danish. Fatty, I know, but it's comfort food. And oh boy, the way they bake them, it's like an angel crying on your tongue. Then I swing by and spar with the guys at the barber shop. I can always count on five or six voters waiting for a cut. This barber is slower than death. Joe the barber hates me. He's a Republican from way back. Probably cast his first vote for Lincoln. Every time I set foot in his shop, he greets me the same way. You cost me too damn much. Hi, Joe, I say, smiling and winking at his peanut gallery. What's the good news today? The radio says they want to make more of you. For the general election, says Joe. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars. We have too many politicians crawling around the country as it is. Well, Joe, as you know, making more proxies is cheap money after the first one. This is true. When they perfected the cloning process, they found an interesting trick. Cloning one person costs, well, it's a state secret how much it costs, so you can guess how much that is. But the first time you do it, you make a kind of a mold. That's how they explained it to me, anyway. And from that mold, you can pour as many copies as you want for a few bucks a shot. I'm a bargain, Joe. You get to tell me off in person every day. I wink. I take a quick glance to see how the other men react. But I notice that most of them are looking out the window at Rachel, who's standing outside on her phone. It's freezing, but she always waits outside the barber shop. A little more chit-chat, one more winning smile, and I'm moving on. I'm starting to think I know this town better than the one where I live. I know where to get the best martini, and the freshest lobster roll. I can practically count the votes here by name. You know what, Rach? When I'm done with the White House, we should come back here. I would make a really good mayor. First things first, Senator, she says, and steers me back to the car. 
Back at the hotel, I get out of the shower to see Rachel tapping at her laptop. She snaps it closed as soon as she hears me. Bad news in the polls? I ask, smiling, not my politician smile, but my real one. Only Rachel gets the real one. Yes, but not in yours. I was actually reading about the Republicans. Word is Governor Cute just got himself a sex scandal. Hot damn! Was he caught with a dead girl? A live boy? Both? Daughter of a senator. Scratch that. Two daughters, and they let it slip on Twitter. They get a book deal. He's down for the count. That's it. Republicans are done. Cute's the only candidate they had this year who could walk down the street without wearing out his knuckles. I feel relief and desire and lust. I have this thing in the bag. I can picture myself, well, um, yeah, myself, walking into the Oval Office and dropping my loafers right at the top of that desk. She responds to my smile. She loves this game, almost as much as I do. I know what you're probably thinking. I picked her as my aide because... Vavoom. But believe me, I'm lucky to have her. She's been working on campaigns since junior high. This is her first real gig on a national campaign, and she already acts like a vet. I would be lost without her. I'd be lost on nights like this, too. Back in Washington, I was out every night and on the phone the minute I got home. I'd call old friends, new colleagues, people I had to cajole, constituents who thought I'd never remember their names. I love to talk to people, but now that I'm... Well, I, I can't really do that now. None of us proxies are allowed to make casual calls. And these aren't my friends anymore. It would creep people out. But Rachel? Rachel is all mine. We have to get up in five hours, she says, pulling me into bed. So let's get three hours of sleep, if you're lucky. I'll make it one. And so I'm tired and not in the mood the next morning when my phone rings. It was someone I didn't want to talk to, and I had to schlep all the way outside to meet him. I pull on some clothes and go to the street to find Harry Angler, idling at the curb in a rental car, his window halfway down. A doughy guy with a potato-shaped head and a comb-over like bent hay. He had, as always, no facial expression whatsoever. And here he is, getting me up the first thing in the morning. Angler's the guy who gets stuff done for me in D.C. When I first found him, early in my career, he was just a two-bit election fixer, working for dead-end campaigns, you know the racket, running push-pulls to make the other guy sound like Hitler's lost grandson, or, or spreading photos of an uptight Christian blitzed at a gay bar. Angler didn't have much of a resume, but I saw something there I could use, and now he works for me. I mean, the original me, the me in D.C., on all of my campaigns. That also means he's in charge of the proxies. He swings by to check on me every couple of weeks. I used to have him on the phone 20 times a day, and now I only get in time with him when he feels like showing up. Harry, hi, I say, leaning in casually on the window. He just pushes a pole in my hand. This is confidential from the campaign. I skim the pages. I don't see any surprises. La Montaigne's gaining ground with the 50- to 65-year-old divorcees. You have a lot of those here, no? Could you at least turn off the car so I don't have to talk over your engine? Oh, sure, I'm working their votes, I say, 
And listen, I also made some headway on the windmill project. That's good. We have no room for error here. And don't forget, Windswept Industries needs that thing built, or the money they're sending us is gone. We chit-chat a little more, but I can tell he's eager to move on. Damn it, I think. Would you treat me, the original me, this way? How would me in D.C. act if he saw you act like this? But again, I didn't say anything, because, as hard as it is to admit, I need him. Sounding casual, I ask, Oh, listen, so, any movement on the leaderboard? The leaderboard's always moving, he answered. So how am I doing? You've done great work here, says Angler. Great work. And we expect even more. And that's all I get out of him before he leaves. Can I ask you a question? Says Joe the barber, a straight racer over my temple. Shoot, I say. I was there, for once, to get an actual haircut, and we had the shop to ourselves. Seeing Angler's scruffy dome made me want to get my own cleaned up. I have to look my best for all those lonely old women whose votes weren't in the bag. You're Ted Tescadero, and there's Senator Ted Tescadero down in Washington, and then there are Ninety-nine more of you running around. That's the head count. Well, it's a hundred minus the one we lost on Christmas, and I think Rachel said another one just dropped out. I'm not sure what that means. I was eavesdropping. So when this election's over, what do you all do? Well, during the election, as you know, I'll be traveling the country for the campaign. After that, we'll still represent the president and push his agenda. You remember when people joked that President Obama was everywhere whenever he had something to push? I can really do it. So you stay on the road while the first senator goes to the White House? I know I shouldn't tell him, but I can't resist. Here's the thing, I say, lowering my tone. We have something called the leaderboard. It's how we rank all the proxies. Joe is shaving me now, getting things oh so smooth around my ear. The way it works, when you help the campaign, you move up. If you screw up, you move down. The proxies near the top get the choice assignments. And when the election's over, the top one gets, well, I shouldn't say. Let me guess. You get some time in the White House. Exactly, I answer. The original Ted can take long vacations while I stay in Washington. I get to share power with myself. Joe thinks it over, but he doesn't seem convinced. I don't know. He's you. You're him. Would you give up the top seat? Even for one single day? He catches me for a second. But I shoot him an easy smile and say, Well, I do like my vacations. Joe laughs. Score. I know you think you're doing us voters a favor. But the thing is, people don't like politicians, says Joe. We only like them at their funerals. I care about the windmill. And I care about this town. You see me every day. Ted, if you lived here, I'd hate you year-round. Maybe you just don't know me well enough. I grin. On my way out the door, my cell phone rings. I have to take this call. It's none other than Jim McSchmidt. The guy whose nudie bar stands between me and the White House. He suggests we meet for lunch. Rachel had been working for days to set this up. And now he calls me, and names the restaurant. It's not the one I would have picked, but only because I'm not a member. Yet. 
McSmith meets me at the 10 Congress Club. It's a swank new social club with a membership fee in the thousands and a line of old and new money waiting to pay. McSmith, shall we say, is new money. One look at the guy and you hid your wallet. Beady eyes squinted between a smooth-shaved gnome and a bushy handlebar mustache, and his leather jacket was filthy. First thing he warned me, Don't swear in here. They'll fucking fine you. My goal here was to see if we could settle this at a cost the city council could swallow. If it wasn't starting well. My goal here was to see if we could settle this at a cost the city council could swallow. And it wasn't starting well. We started off on his turf, on his clock, and he knew that he had what I needed. Here's my thing, he says. I'm just a guy making a living on beer, tits, and wings. Not a Washington big shot like you. Hey, I think I know a little bit more about your situation than you think, I correct him. I ran a small business myself. Yeah, what was that? My law practice. McSmith scoffs at that, but I ignore him. I was a trial lawyer. Win a case and you're rich. Lose and you just wasted a year on nothing. I know what American businessmen put on the line. What I heard, you won plenty of cases. Did pretty well for yourself. Why'd you even get into politics? What do they pay you in the Senate? It's not really about the pay, I say, realizing that no one ever really asks me about this. I love it for the same reason I love a trial. I love going into a court and persuading people, because that's half the battle. Not just having the facts and the evidence, but convincing them that you're their guy. I'm good at that. Put me in front of anyone face to face, and I can get them to hear me out. And when they do, they usually agree with me. Mick Smith cuts me off. Don't count on getting any agreement from me. Seems that you just came here to tell me to get out of town. And nobody tells me that, ever. Tough talk. But I've heard tougher. Okay. Then what should I tell you? What'll you give me if I nix the restaurant? I laugh. I'm not writing you a check, if that's what you're getting at. Election officials take offense at that kind of thing. I'm not fucking slow. I know you can't just give me something, but even if you lose the race, you're a fucking senator. A favor from you could be worth something. And anyway, Law Montaigne's people have been dragging their dicks in the sand about what they'll do for me. This surprises me. You're saying Law Montaigne's backing you up on this? Well, yeah. I talked to some of his people. He doesn't talk to me directly, like you. There aren't as many of him, so his time's worth a little more. His grin went halfway to his snarl. Law Montaigne will never make it to the White House. If I win here, I win the White House. And I will remember the people who helped me along the way. McSmith goes silent. He swirls his drink around. Well, that's fucking sweet. But what can you do for me down there? Law Montaigne's right over in Maine. Lots of girls in Maine want to work for a body shots. Especially in this economy. Lots of local talent up there. You know they have a topless donut shop up near the Capitol? So I guess you're saying that you don't want me to go to Washington and save the economy. I joke. That gets a genuine laugh out of him. And for a second there, I don't want to kill the guy. But by the time the tab comes, I know we're done here. And he hammers it in as he reaches for the tab and looks at the fines the maitre d' was quietly ticking up every time he opened his stupid mouth.
Sorry, I can't help you. But hey, I'm the one who spent $240 to tell you what's on my mind. What's plan B? Rachel asks back at the hotel. I don't even feel like sex. I sigh. <sighs> we can try and seize the lot through eminent domain, but that's a scorched earth approach. It's bound to tick off voters left, right, and center. I groan. Maybe I can find some other buyer for the land. The La Montaigne will find a way to block you, she says. And that stings. Here's La Montaigne playing his pawns against me while he won't even stoop to sit at the chessboard. When I get into office, I'm going to move so much nuclear waste in his state that, that fucker won't need lights on the highway. I love it when you talk all tough, Rachel laughs. And she walks into the other room to pour a couple of drinks. Her laptop is open, and I glance over and see a poll on her screen. I've never seen this one before. It isn't a poll of the primary or the likely nominees, and isn't an issue on polls either. It's a poll I've never seen before, a poll about proxies. Do you support the use of proxies to reach out to the voters? Asks the first question. 63% said yes. Okay, that's nice. The voters still like the personal touch. Recently, the federal government revealed the true price of the program. Do you think it's worth the expense? Hey, that was news. I didn't realize the cost had leaked. Doesn't anyone know how to keep a secret anymore? And here, the numbers look bad. 3% thought it was worth the money. 2% were not sure. Everyone else was totally pissed off. Well, okay, people hate it when you spend their money. But come on, we can spend this. I just catch the next question, which looked like it had something to do with my car crash last December. Given the controversy over the cost, the ethical issues, and the public safety risks, do you believe the proxy program should... And then I hear Rachel padding back into the bedroom. Skilled from years of surfing porn at the office, I flick the window back in time and slide away from the computer. What's up? she asks. Planning my next move on the body shot situation. With a heavy sigh, I say. This is going to get ugly. Rach, I'm going to need to talk to Harry Angler tomorrow. Can you get me on the phone with him? The minute the name leaves my lips... I know I've screwed up. See, Rachel's an idealist. A world saver. She used to spend spring break walking girls past the mobs at abortion clinics. She hears me bring up Angler's name. She knows exactly what I have in mind. You don't have any other ideas? Nope. None. I can't do this the right way. But I can still get it done. Her eyes get hard. She's giving me idealist eyes. You know, I joined this campaign because I know you can be a good man. That's what matters to me. You're here to do right, and this isn't right. Rachel, sometimes the ends justify the... She cuts that off with a wave of her hand. Don't bullshit me. So I speak to her as honestly as I know how. I don't have a choice here, Rach. I really don't have a choice. If I slip on the leaderboard, if I don't deliver this town, I'm finished. Just finished. You think I don't know how this thing works? Do you think I really believe the bottom ten guys are getting ambassadorships? And, I added after a thought, 
regardless. I didn't come this far to give up. It's not who I am. We don't talk the rest of that night. The last time I see her is when she drops my blanket and pillow on the couch. But I can handle that. Give it time, and she'll see my point of view. The next week was very convenient for me. McSmith made the papers. While driving back from a meeting to look at plans for an ice luge, McSmith started driving erratically. He totaled his Mustang on the lawn of a historic house, pulverizing a 17th century birdbath. And what should the cops find in the glove compartment but a tiny bag with a few snorts of cocaine? The legal bill will be staggering. Selling the lot for body shots is a given. By the time of the primary, we had a deal. The council voted for it. The windmill company gave them a special price for a pilot program. Even Rachel started to warm back up to me. She isn't happy about McSmith. No mistaking that. But hey, green energy is one of her issues. Technically, this is a win. I won the primary, too. The state was close, but I had a landslide margin in Fairport. And I made the top of the proxy leaderboard. Should have been over the moon. But somehow, I don't feel finished with this place. In fact, tell the truth, it feels like the town is finished with me. On primary night, I stood outside the polling place at the middle school, shaking hands at the gym. On the way in, everyone shook my hand and promised to give me their vote. And on the way out, they kept saying goodbye, like they were never going to see me again. My campaign party felt like a wake. The mayor came and he gave me a beefy handshake. Dad, we're really pleased about this project, he says. And hey, I know you'll be busy in the White House next spring, but is there any way you can come back for the groundbreaking? It's your baby and we'd love to take your photo with it. I wouldn't miss it, I said, smiling. But listen... Uh, in case I'm busy, could we take the photo with... I didn't know how to put this. Like, could you take a picture of me for this? Ted, we haven't even broken ground yet. I blurted out, if I come back this fall, well, I don't know if it'll be me. Me, me. You know? The mayor suddenly got my meaning. He stopped. We had an awkward moment. But it was just a moment. He's a pole and knows how to come right back to the comfort zone. With a cough and a smile, he claps me on the back and says, Ted, it'll be you and me and the Secret Service and all your friends in Fairport. And we will welcome you back. My last day in Fairport, I decide to get my hair cut. Naturally, I go to Joe's. I wanted to say goodbye and rib him a little for not voting for me. Rachel says she'd meet me here as soon as the car is packed. And then we're off to D.C. for our next assignment. Ted, I didn't vote for you. That's true. You're on the wrong ticket, says Joe. But I gotta say, you lived up to your word. You said you'd build that ridiculous windmill and saddle us all with debt. And you did it. It'll save you money in the long run, I reminded him as he changed clippers. Remains to be seen. I'll come back and find out, I smile. Damn, I was feeling homesick already and we hadn't even pulled out of town. Joe was silent for a while. 
So what's next for you? He asks. And he sounds a little funny. They haven't told me. But I have a feeling it's going to be great, I say. Of course, I'm curious what's next. Just because the election's in the bag doesn't mean we can stop working. Maybe they'll send me to California. The big prize. I love the weather. And one of me isn't enough for that state that big. Maybe I'll get more proxies. Working under me. A hundred of them, canvassing the state, and I would coordinate them all. In fact, I wonder if I can give each of them a Rachel. I look out the window to see if Rachel's brought the car. Then I spot something. A van pulls up outside. And a man in a rumpled trench coat slouches out. It's Angler. What's in the paper? I ask. Any good news? Nah. Nothing you should worry about yourself. You just won big, didn't you? Angler walks in. And I get a feeling in my gut. The feeling I get when I'm about to be ambushed by a reporter. Or sunk in a debate. Just when I shouldn't take a call. I get a feeling that I should excuse myself. But there's nowhere to go. Senator, he says, come with me. Wait a minute. His haircut's not done, Joe objects. He puts a hand on my shoulder. Angler doesn't even look at him. Time to go, Senator. I nod to Joe and stand. I offer to pay, but Joe shakes his head. On the house. Well, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate that. And for the first time, he extends his hand. We shake. Best of luck to you, Senator, he says. And as I leave the shop and get in the van, I feel good. I could swear I almost have his vote. And that was our story. One of the things I really dislike about politicians is that they could likely be quite nice folks, but they have to balance any of their personality with blandness to appeal to the most people. They have to be passionate about the issues at hand, and then they have to be boring. I remember I really disliked Bob Dole until I saw him interviewed on The Daily Show after the election. He was funny and relaxed, no longer that stiff, boring old guy that ran for president. It didn't make me regret not voting for him, but I wondered why he didn't show his relaxed side on the campaign trail. He would have been more likable. Then you have politicians who can't turn it off. Several years ago, I did some podcast work for, well, let's just say a recently disgraced North Carolina senator. And every time I met with him, he got the wide smile, the perfect hair, and the sound bites. Even at dinner with podcasters, even after we stopped recording, he was always the same. Never did like him much. I think Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy had it right when he said the only people fit to rule are those that have no desire to do so. This is the part of the podcast where I remind you that Escape Pod is a pro-paying market now, and we rely on your donations to pay our fantastic authors. Please consider supporting us. And if you would like to contribute to our blog, please email me at editor at escapepod.org. I know I've yet to get back to some of you, but I will get on that soon. Now we reach the part of the podcast that has Bill Peters and feedback. Hello, faithful listener, and welcome to the feedback for episode 257, Union Dues, The Sum of Its Parts, an Escape Pod original by Jeffrey R. Dorigo, and read for us by P.G. Holyfield of Murder at Avedon Hill. The story, a prequel in the Union Dues universe, 
showed the first team of supers soon after their creation. Winter Mute said, Of course, it does raise the question of what happened between the five deliberate army experiments and supers being born into the population at large. There's at least one story in that gap, plus it, once again, ignites my interest in how supers fare in the rest of the world, even if they're only ever born in America. I'm sure some of them managed to emigrate, and the Union may have difficulty getting them back from Canada, let alone China. Gamer Cow said, This one missed the mark for me especially if you take it on its own merits rather than one episode in a larger body of work. If we look at this as a comic in a series, for example, it's a weak issue, but one that gives step to the history and background of the overall work. What I'm going to take away from the story is more info on the starting group of the Union, not the conflict itself, nor the colonel. I would definitely consider this an ancillary story, something that belongs in a kind of Union due Cimmerillion. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week for the feedback from episode 258, Raising Jenny. Thank you, Bill. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. Blog about us, talk about us, tweet about us, or most of all, donate to us. We love all these things. The PayPal button is at escapepod.org. Be sure to check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror and Podcastle for Fantasy, at their .org domains. Escape Pod is edited by Mer Lafferty, with Bill Peters as assistant to the regional manager, or the ARM, and Matt Weller as producer. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. And recently, someone asked me how to spell Daikaiju. D-I-A-K-A-I-J-U. It's Japanese for really big monster. That was our show for this week, and our quote comes from John James Ingalls. The purification of politics is an iridescent dream. We'll see you next week with a story containing a Japanese bent. Till then, be mighty. Be mighty.